Hi everyone, this is Jonathan, the host and producer of the Spatial Navigator podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I hope that it's been serving its purpose, informing you of all the work that researchers are doing with spatial biology. As of today, this podcast has reached over 200 pairs of ears in over 10 different countries. My goal, therefore, is to reach 2,000 listeners by the end of the year. If you have found this podcast beneficial and exciting, please share it with your colleagues and peers. I have so much planned in the coming months and hope that you are as excited as I am. Once again, thank you so much for listening. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Today I have such an exciting episode for you. What if you could test immunotherapies on copies of the same cancer tumors at scale? My guests, Dr. Andrea Pavesi and Dr. Maxine Lam, are looking to do just that. They are from the Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology in Singapore, and we discuss their work on developing next-generation three-dimensional organoids of the liver and brain. These models recapitulate human tissue, and we further discuss their hope for its use in preclinical testing. Without further ado, let me give them the floor and let them introduce themselves. Dr. Pavesi, we can start with you. I'm Andrea Pavesi. I'm a junior investigator at IMCB, that means Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology, under the umbrella of ASTAR, that is the research entity here in Singapore. The lab that we put together is mainly focusing on the tumor microenvironment, and we create in vitro model of the tumor microenvironment. That means we try to replicate some of the features of the complexity of human tumor. We are using human cells, and we have a a focus on immunotherapy. That means we are using a technique that is called cell therapy right now. So we are using immune cells to fight against cancer cells and tumor cells. We engineer them and we test them in this in vitro model. We try to evaluate how the immune cells move into the tumor microenvironment and how to enhance those therapies. Here with me, there's Maxine, that is a postdoc here in the lab. And Maxine, please go ahead if you... Yeah, so... Uh, I'm Maxine, I'm the postdoc, and basically in my job in the lab is to figure out and optimize the different in vitro models that we are trying to establish. I think the one that we worked with you on was the liver model, but in the lab we also have a, a glioblastoma blood-brain barrier model, for example, and a bunch of other stuff, but those are the two key ones, yeah. Especially, I mean, just if to add, we are working with collaborators that are developing immunotherapy uh, specifically for brain cancer and liver cancer. So this is why those two are the main model that we are developing in the lab. We have other models, it's just that it's not specific for cell therapy, but more generic to drug discovery application. Yeah, and then maybe I just want to also add that we kind of also try to create these tissues on a glass slide or in a 24-well format. So the idea is to kind of have these mini tissues which have more complexity than, say, 2D plastic cultures. But at the same time, we want to try and have it scalable to a small degree. 
Yeah, and I mean, just to conclude, maybe we should say what complexity means for us, because, you know, complexity can mean many things. So complexity is when you have multiple cell type and multiple cell type in our case means like uh, four, five, six cell types that are growing all together. We let this tissue to adapt to the environment. And just give an example. So we have a tumor sphere, tumor aggregate, and we let, for example, vasculature to grow around this piece of tumor. And the vasculature is perfusible. And we also infuse immune cells. So then you have cancer cell vasculature and immune cells. You start having like a four or five cell type that together they play a fundamental role in the, in the tumor progression and building the model of a human tumor. I think you briefly mentioned 2D plastic cultures. I'm not entirely familiar with that. What, how does that differ from the 3D organoids that you were mentioning? So actually, most lab work with cell cultures start with 2D models, right? The, the cells are grown on plastic, in flasks, in petri dishes. So that's how most people will culture their cells. And that's how most people will do their experiments for drug testing or even cell therapy testing. So what we do is then we take these cells and then we culture them in a matrix. And the matrix can be, there's many different kinds of matrix. You have matrigel, which is kind of a, an ECM that is derived from a mouse sarcoma. Or you can have uh, fibrinogen gels, you can have collagen gels. And basically what these gels do is just provide like a, a scaffold, something to hold on to these cells so that they have that space in three dimension to then reorganize and interact with each other. And in, in our lab, we really rely on the cell formation and the tendency of the, these primary cells to just kind of interact with each other in their native environment. For example, with the endothelial cells, when you grow them on plastic, they just kind of, they, they tend to grow as single cells. They don't form like a lumen, they don't form a vessel, they don't form essentially like a kind of a pipe, right? That's how vessels are supposed to be. So, but then when we culture them in our setup, they do actually form these lumen, they do form these vessels that connect with each other. And then you can actually then perfuse these vessels and introduce drugs, you can introduce immune cells and see how they cross the, the vasculature basically. So, so that's the big difference between 2D and 3D, which, which sounds very simple, but actually there's a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and there's a huge literature around it that, I mean, if you grow a cell on a piece of plastic compared to a growing cell in a matrix, because of the feature that Max mentioned, that means also that the secreted factor, all the omics are changing. So the, whatever the cell is secreting, whatever the, the cell is start to produce is totally different in a 3D environment compared to 2D. So the big question is which one is the best model to test something like a drug or a cell therapy. And there's always this question mark now to compare the finding in a, from a 2D to a 3D and trying to understand and match and compare to the, to the human outcome, right? I think you mentioned like for cell and gene therapies, people might use these cell simulations, sorry, the in, vi the in vitro models, and this would be opposed to using things like animal models, or are they used in conjunction? There's it, it, a big difference, right? So animal model is an animal, and there's a limitation of, there's a bunch of limitation in using an animal model, specifically a, a mice. So the immune system 
has some different feature compared to a human immune system, so the salt can behave in a, in a different way. I, I'm not touching all the, the ethical aspect of it, of using the animal yeah. model, uh, and the cost also associated with animal model. So by building human-based in vitro model, we believe and, and, uh, and we are trying to basically build more and more evidence to show that uh, that can be advantages compared to an animal model because we are just cherry picking the most important component of that specific organ or, or, or microenvironment that we want to, to model. Uh, and the synergy between those cells can be more physiologically relevant compared to other models. Plus, it's going to be cheaper and not, and not going in the direction of using uh, animals anymore. So when I, when I studied engineering, part of it was tissue engineering and understanding these 3D scaffolds for, for the building of tissues. And then you care about different properties like the porosity of, of the scaffold uh, so that you can have blood vessels neoangiogenesis as well as waste removal would this be in a similar manner or like in a similar yeah. subgroup yeah so actually part of the optimization process is exactly that although because we're not uh, technically a mechanobiology lab but we do collaborate with the mechanobiology institute of singapore we are not at the moment super um interested in the porosity and the fiber orientation for example of these ecm gels that we're using but we know for sure that they matter because during the optimization, I play around with the different concentrations, different gelling times and stuff like that. And it's kind of, you can call it trial and error, but it's systematic. And I and, and there is a particular consistency of the gel, let's just say, that allows for vascularization and um, definitely impacts the way that the cells behave. So there are parameters that need to be tweaked and there is a a Goldilocks spot, if you will, yeah. And just to mention, so in our model, we're using mainly collagen as a matrix. So collagen fiber is a, our choice. And why we are using collagen and no other type of hydrogel is because we want to start with a so-called white canvas. So collagen is one of the most abundant metrics in, in most of our tissue. So we just want to have that one as a starting point where after that, the cells start to secrete their own matrix and they are going to build their own microenvironment. Instead of having other hydrogel or other matrix that are more synthetic. So we try to make as more physiological relevant as possible. Yeah, I mean, you could spend an entire PhD just studying how porosity affects vasculogenesis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's like, you know, that th there are people who write PhD papers based on this exact topic. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't have the time for that. <laughs> I, th I think I was reading through through that uh, the paper that, that was mentioning all the hallmarks of hepatocellular carcinoma. And I, I put a comment on the on the side that, wow, the, the whole process that leads to like immunosuppression, but that leads from hypoxia and fibrosis just to try and recruit other immune cells to to create that immunosuppressive environment in my comments i was like wow cancer cells are really savage but that, leading to the next question the dysfunctional vasculature and fibrosis is such a hallmark of hepatocellular carcinoma and branches off further into into further developments like i just mentioned hypoxia immunosuppression through multiple means 
how important is it that the new generation of, of models can vary its permeability and density? That, that leads on from what we were just talking about. I mean, obviously, if you ask us, we think it's incredibly important, right? Because that's what we work on. <laughs> Every scientist you ask will tell you that what they work on is incredibly important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very objective answers. But it is, it, I mean, you know, it's a feature of tumours, which, especially solid tumours, because that's what we work on. That's overlooked, right? Everyone's kind of focused on um, the fact that these cells divide rapidly and, you know, they, they may or may not be susceptible to drugs. But, you know, because we come from a mechanobiology, bioengineering background, like the first thing that we notice when you look at a tumour is the fact that it's massive, is a physical structure as much as it's a biochemical structure, right? And and that has to be taken into consideration. And, and, and you could argue that that's probably why there is difficulty in translating every single drug that works in 2D on a plastic in the lab to a, a patient because there's just too many levels of complexity when you go from 2D to an animal. And we need to kind of find that kind of middle ground where we can incorporate these more complex 3D structures in vitro to kind of help us along with uh, the testing and, and also to understand the tumor biology more. And I'm, I mean, I remember that I mean, we are scientists and we have evidence right now to support this theory. I mean, why we believe that vasculature is such an important element to, uh, to model is because, I mean, now we are preparing uh, a manuscript where in case of liver cancer, for example, we use sorafenib when uh, that one of the, the therapy that is mostly uh, using for this type of tumor and cancer. And so sorafenib was behaving in a very different way when we have a model with compared to without vasculature. And at the same time, engineer immune cells, like engineer lymphocyte, again, liver cancer, they were acting in a very different way. And this is like what we use also uh, with your technology, like with nanostring. And we understand that lymphocyte, they were going through an endothelial barrier, we're getting an activation that is different from a model, I'm talking about model, that is just a lymphocyte migrating and killing the tumor. So that vasculature, it's really implying a lot of key biology process that we have to better understand through this model that we are basically making in the lab. The question I had next was, for organoids, are you able to test drug sensitivity and resistance before embarking on treatment? I think the answer would be yes, but are there any present examples of that being done in, in say, clinical settings? The, the answer is yes. Uh, the, the challenge is how you can correlate with the patient. So that's the challenge. So in vitro, we can always have a nice comparison between difference between 2D, 3D. You can have like these organoids that, that you see that have a, a specific behavior under a treatment. But after that, the, the big question is like, okay, now I have a patient and I want to treat in the same way that you treat that organoid. How's the correlation over there? How are we going to gather more and more data to show that this type of model are really mirroring what's happening uh, in a clinical setting? And I think that is like where most of us has to uh, concentrate more to have, to really bridge the, the lab activity with the clinical setting. And, and, and start to collect more and more data to, to, to show that there is a correlation. Unfortunately, cancer, even if we are talking about the same type of cancer, like liver cancer, uh, is different in, 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 a, in every patient. So you can have a patient that has a, 
uh, a good response to, the, to therapy A and you have the patient that has a, a bad response to therapy B. Uh, a, sorry, <laughs> again. And, and this is why we, we believe that this model can be helpful. It's really to understand if I'm building a model specific for that patient and we go in the direction of personalized therapy, if I can give to that uh, clinician that drug A, B, or combination A and C is the best uh, way to treat that patient. So hopefully we, in the future, we will see more of those type of uh, uh, correlation between lab research and, and, and clinical setting. Yeah, and I think just to add on that note, like, because we're working with organoids, the idea is also that the devices are large enough that they can also incorporate small biopsies. So then you're not even working with something that you've grown in the lab and you hope is similar to the patient. You're actually taking direct patient biopsies and you're putting them in the setup and then you're seeing how they respond, kind of like a, a xenograft. So, so that is also kind of moving towards becoming more relevant to patient-specific treatment. But again, like, you know, like Andrea said, cancer is incredibly heterogeneous, not just between patients, but within the patient because the tumor is so big, uh, going from the middle to the outside of the, the tumor, its behavior can change. So, I mean, again, we can just do our best to try and create a model that is as closely representative as it can be, given the constraints that we have, like, you know, I mean, ideally you just take the whole tumor, you make copies of it, and then you just try lots of different drugs, but that's not possible at the moment. Yeah, we talked at length about, about intratumor and intertumor heterogeneity. I guess then what excites you about spatial transcriptomics and how important is the spatial information in the study of the disease and the efficacy of treatment? I think part of the spatial transcriptomics is the fact that you will have information on a specific location of a certain cells, right? So we build models. So then imagine that you have your tumor region, you have your blood vessel, you have the ECM, and you have immune cells. In our case, we're interested in how immune cells, for example, after inject them in the bloodstream, in, in this pipe that we recreate in vitro, so how they move, connect to the, to the barrier, to this endothelial barrier, how they migrate outside, that means extravasate, move into the matrix and how they interact with the tumor. So, and only if you have the ability to take a snap of that specific moment of a cell inside the lumen, a cell crossing, a cell in the matrix, a cell interacting with the tumor and assess those different steps. So that is like a tremendous tool that we have in order to understand the profile of those cells that are going through those different barriers of the tumor microenvironment. And knowing the profile, then we can further fine tune the, uh, the therapy that we are designing. And that's, I mean, it's going to be a great advantage. I think earlier Maxine mentioned also mentioned about like biopsies and, and I assume that would be in different moments of time. So with a single patient, you might be taking biopsy from this a similar ah uh, sorry from the same site but across multiple time windows would I be right in mm, no so I think based because of the way that um, the the surgeries are especially in Singapore they tend to be just a single time point uh, and they tend to be biopsies from when the main resection is occurring rather than kind of like a needle 
biopsies periodically yeah so we do we do actually just have like a, a, a chunk of tissue and that we just then try to segregate and to account for the heterogeneity as much as possible yeah but the then the kind of the thing about biopsies is that they have much more different cell types than what we can grow in the lab um, and also they have the heterogeneity of the cancer cells themselves because again we tend to think of tumors as mostly cancer cells but actually it's an ecosystem of fibroblasts of immune cell types of other resident cells uh, of the organ which have been corrupted or just co-opted um, so with spatial transcriptomics you can also then identify the different cell types that are interacting with each other in these kind of in the biopsies um, and also how they might be affecting cell therapy efficacies or drug treatments potentially that's the hope also mentioned like there are more cells more types of cells within a tumor than you can grow in the lab could you help me understand why that's the case or what makes it difficult to to grow all those different cell types i think we still don't fully understand what goes on in a tumor i mean we, we know a lot more than before but but um the traditional way of kind of looking at a tumor has been to take the tumor, uh, bring it into the lab, dissociate it into single cells, and then see what grows. And then the assumption is that whatever grows is the cancer. And that's to a large extent true because cancer cells have this fantastic ability to grow no matter what. But when you think about the original tumor, it was the, 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 it, it has all these other cell types that uh, get lost when you select only for things that grow on a plastic dish, right? So what we're hoping to go back to now is rather than take a clinical sample, turn it, blend it into a soup and then see what sticks, um, just keep it as it is, keep the endogenous tissue and try and keep as much of it as alive. And I think that's kind of where the, the field is trending towards in general, in like keeping entire tissues and trying to identify all the different cell types. And I think there's increasing recognition that different cell types help or impair drug treatments and cell therapies in a tumor. It's not just the cancer itself anymore. And then for the design of these models, like the microfluidic devices, what goes into the development of it and what are your considerations in its design? I think, Andrea, that's your domain. There's a lot of trial and error, to be honest with you. So we, we always, we, we, I mean, we start with a nice meeting. We sit at the table with a huge, big whiteboard and we start to draw the best uh, possible uh, solution that is able to uh, put together all our wishes. And let me explain, like you, you want to. No, it starts with the wishes first. Let's go back. So go back. So we'll be like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this? <laughs> right. We, we open the, 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 the physiology book and say, okay, let's study this organ, this organ that has all this feature and all these cells and all this behavior that we should try to replicate in an in vitro setting. And after that, we put together and we brainstorm what is possible and, and achievable to do in an ex vivo setting that is outside of the body, right? And we, we always try to identify also the most important variable of the system. Unfortunately, by doing this exercise, you can omit variable that 
you believe that they're not important, but at the end they are also important. So we need to be extremely careful in, in choosing the variable. Uh, and after that, going back to the design of a device, when we know more or less which kind of cells and how they, uh, they need to be specially allocated, we try to understand, okay, here we need a chamber for this type of hydrogel with cell type one, two, three. Here we need to have another adjacent tissue with uh, this other cell type. Here we need to have the blood vessel and here we need to have perfusion of, uh, of nutrient. And from there, really, we, we start sketching uh, how to organize cells together, hydrogel matrix, uh, where to perfuse uh, fluid and so on. And after a few interaction, we have the first prototype. We go in the lab with the first prototype, we see that nothing's working. <laughs> and then we start the so-called fine tuning process that it will last two, three interaction or 50 interaction. So it's really like uh, depending of the, the result outcome. And uh, we're really happy because more and more often now we see also the translation between the, the finding and uh, the design of this object to the lab, to the industry, from the lab to the industry. So we, we patent these uh, devices and we license to the industry. And now like many labs around the world are using uh, the tool that we develop in the lab. Yeah, I think also there is also, because I'm not from bioengineering. So what I appreciate was also that there is at some point some kind of consideration for ease of use and kind of manufacturing, which is important because we don't want to create a model that only we can use, right? We want something that people will find useful and that will help to push the whole field along. So Andrea, you mentioned that the technique has been patented. Can I ask whether it's been licensed to anyone so far? Oh yeah, I mean, we're pretty happy for, for, for a couple of reasons. So we recently established a joint lab. So our lab is the service lab for a local growing startup that is called AIM Biotech. So AIM is using our facility and all together we are building this type of model for the customer that are approaching them. And at the same time, when we develop a new technology, a new tool, they are usually the one that are interested in licensing. Uh, and right now, after the Series A investment round for them, so all the products basically are available, commercial available, and they are sold around the world. And I mean, for those who are interested, I mean, they can just check out uh, what we built through, through that company, basically. And then circling back to the development of the models, can I ask whether you're using growth factors in the intermediate stages to um, continue building the model? Or are you using multiple growth factors in conjunction with each other? Yeah, so, so we do use growth factors in the beginning, again, because we use a very kind of new, not, not neutral, but more neutral than matrigel. Yeah, we use a fairly neutral hydrogel to grow all the cells. So there, there aren't as many factors built in. So we do have to add a few things, but there's also factors in the media and stuff like that. And that's all kind of part of the fun of the optimization, trying to figure out when to time the factors and when to remove the factors. This is kind of, it's frustrating, but it's interesting as well, because like my background is developmental biology as well. So it was developmental mechanobiology. And it's very interesting to see how um, you can actually mirror developmental phases in these devices, uh, when to include the growth factors, when to remove them. So it's, I think also another potential for these devices and these culture conditions is not just to study cancer, but also to 
to, to study development, right? Because we're kind of reverse engineering everything. <laughs> and we love to see that when, when the model is going to so-called autopilot mode. Yeah, it's actually, that's the amazing part. Yeah, when, when you see your uh, vasculature forming around the tumor, the, the immune cells start to migrate, interact and move around. So just leave the model there. It's going to be in autopilot mode and then you can start doing the so-called perturbation by adding drugs, adding additional immune cells and just put on top of a microscope and observe the phenomena that happen. Yeah, I think we're really just scratching the surface with these with these cultures because we'd actually have this magical opportunity to actually study the very early stages of how tumor interacts with all the surrounding cell type, not just vasculature, because there's also like in the brain model, for example, there's parasites, astrocytes and neurons. In the liver model, there's um, fibroblasts, you can have cancer associated fibroblasts, which is its own field of study. And we'll be able to use this model to basically study how each cell type interacts with each other uh, at from the beginning, essentially, right? So that's, that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I can imagine how exciting it would have been to see sort of like your your culture just take over and, and be. It's actually really magical. They just have, they just, yeah, there's no, there's no little man inside each cell. They just know what to do um, based on uh, their, their intrinsic properties. Because these are all primary cells that we're using. They're not immortalized cells, so except for the cancer cell lines. Yeah. Could you go over the the grant project that you've been working on with Nanostring? Or um, has the data been uh, processed and understood? So the project that we had with Nanostring was basically to try and understand um, the differences within the tumor microenvironment of uh, our hepatocellular carcinoma model um, that were affecting cell therapy um, products. So cell therapy products in this particular case was an engineered TCR T cell that was engineered to target uh, HCC cancer cells. And so with the, the project for Nanostring, what we managed to see was really individual immune cells kind of trapped in the vasculature or migrating out or, or targeting. And what we were hoping to see was kind of just differences in the tumors with and without the cell therapy and how their transcriptomics basically changed with the, with the, not a drug, but the cell therapy product. And as for the results, I think it's kind of hard to interpret at the moment because what we realized after going through this process is that we really need subs, we need cellular re level resolution, which we were unfortunately unable to get with this round. But what was very useful actually is that uh, we realized that our uh, in vitro cultures had a very similar genetic profile to our clinical samples. So we were able to match the profile quite well to the genes that were being expressed in our cultures, especially when they had the full makeup with the vasculature and the stromal cells, they were actually um, expressing more genes that you that were clinically relevant than if it was just, say, the spheroid, the organoid growing on its own in a gel. So that was a really good kind of validation for us to, to realize that when you add all these other cell types and 
really create that tumor microenvironment, you're getting a signature that is actually perhaps more similar to the clinical setting because probably the clinical setting has these other cell types, right? The clinical clinical data doesn't remove all the different cells. It has all the cells still there. Actually, Andrea spent most of the time analyzing the data, so I don't know why I answered that question. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because it's going back to when I say like you, you have to cherry pick the variable that you want to add in the model and that's a nice confirmation that whatever we choose to add in the model it is a nice way to replicate the, the in vivo model. I mean, and cherry pick means we don't didn't choose two cell types. So we're talking a model here where we have T cell, other type of immune cells, we have fibroblasts, we have endothelial cells, we have the cancer cell, we have specific immune cells that are resident in the liver. So it, it was a, already a complex model, it's just that among hundreds of cells that are present in the real tissue, we choose probably five, six, and we we believe that by reducing the noise of other cells, you can still use in this model for relevant findings. And yeah, so Max, you mentioned the analysis, yeah. And the analysis was, to, for, to be honest with you, was the first time I was analyzing this type of data, and I did everything online, and it was a pretty fast learning curve, and I haven't, had any issue by doing that and I enjoy it to, to be honest analyzing this type of data yeah I mean neither of us has a bioinformatics background so it was it was definitely interesting <laughs> to have to go through this data but it was actually the, 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 the interface was very very useful and your colleagues really helped us walk this through quite a lot which is great the, the suite that, that, that is provided after the data is back is quite robust for, for the data analysis. It, it'd be nice to have a bioinformatician, but not. It's not essential. Not essential, yeah. Still want one, though. <laughs> yeah, because you always Something wonder. Because, that, <laughs> because there's so much data, um, you always wonder if you're missing something, right? But, you know, I guess something has to give. You can't look at every single gene that pops up. How do you foresee the progression of uh, these model studies? And what is your hope for the subfield? My, my wishes is like more and more people start to adopt this model and believe in the, in the beauty and, and the type of result that we are getting. Uh, unfortunately, right now, there's a lot of skepticism around it. And if we see more people, uh, especially in the clinician setting start to collaborate and uh, and really like uh, uh, observing the type of result that we're getting and and collecting and collecting more of the results so the results become more robust I, I believe that uh, we can change how in the next future uh, patient can be can be treated by by using this technology not only in the personalized medicine field but also in the in the way that we develop drug you know that in a drug development phase, majority of the drug that reach the final stage of clinical trial, they just get discharged because something was not working after they went to, into a clinical trial. So we really want to improve the discovery part by uh, offering also to the pharma uh, much more reliable and physiologically relevant model. So I hope these two strategies where pharma will start to adopt, and, and they already started, and we see every day pharma go in the direction of adopting this type of model. Now we need to work a little bit more uh, with clinicians where 
obtaining uh, tissue biopsy and observing the result that we are getting after treatment can correlate with the patient outcome. So if we collect more of this type of data, we will be more and more convincing moving forward. So I think that just to add uh, to what to to what Andreas said is that there is I don't know if it's skepticism or maybe I think more apprehension, right? Like when we present the model, everyone's always like, "Wow, this is beautiful! This is fantastic!" Um, and then when they realize, like you know, how many cell types it takes and like you know um, the fabrication of the devices at the moment is uh, homemade, uh, is uh, we haven't. Um, gotten uh, it to the, we're, we're in process of making it um, like large scale, but the moment it's homemade. So once they realize like kind of the amount of effort required to make the devices and culture the cells and seed the cells, they get very uh, scared to use it, right? So that's, I think, more the limiting factor for why people don't want to take up organoid cultures at the moment. I don't think it's that they don't believe in it. I think they just... Um, they're used to seeding cells and getting their data in a few days. And with this, you get your data in a week, uh, which is not a lot of time uh, if you compare it to animal models. But, um, and like you said, like, like I said before, we're kind of positioning, we're positioned in the middle of like um, 2D culture and animal models. So the time frames are also kind of in the middle but I'm hoping that as more publications come out and people see the utility and how uh, important it is actually to replicate some of these physiological features of the tumor, then more people will take it up. And also if the devices get commercialized, basically, then it will be a lot easier for people to use and just like plug and play, basically. As you were walking over, I was telling Andrea that I've got two, two more questions that, that came up. One from earlier and another one that while he was, while he was talking... Um, like answering the last question. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot about the liver, but I think you mentioned that the, you've also made a blood-brain barrier model. Am I right? So that's also part of the patent, I, I, I would assume. So you've got both liver and brain, or is, would it just be a method for different types of tissue? I think the pattern is for Models. the device, Okay. not the method. I see. Okay, but then you've been able to, to sort of recapitulate both the liver model and the blood-brain brain barrier. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, in the same device, yeah. And the, the blood-brain barrier is... A, Very it, important, actually. Is, yeah, it because is. It, it is a barrier that you cannot just use the same cell as we use in the, in the liver model, so you need to replicate, replicate the barrier that we have in the brain that means there's a specific feature that you're going to observe that is the so-called permeability. So how permeable is that barrier is the factor that you want to replicate in our in vitro model. And Max special is like, she's able to replicate very nicely with... Uh, I can replicate more frequently bad permeability, but um, I have a lot of ways to destroy the blood-brain barrier, let's just say. If, yeah. you, if you want techniques to destroy the blood brain barrier, I have loads. Um, there are a few ways to preserve it. <laughs> this is so interesting because the last person I interviewed for the podcast um, does research on, on uh, the neurovascular unit. Uh, having an impaired NVC then increases your blood brain barrier and per your permeability. Um, and then 
all, the entire cascade of of effects from that. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. It, yeah. It, no. It's it's it's. I think it's something that we take for granted. Like all these little mm-hmm. things that happen in your body that they're so. Um, that they are so precisely controlled and it's only when we are trying to recreate them in the lab and we realize how near impossible it is to get all the conditions right and yeah. and then you realize wow your body is really like a really fine-tuned machine most of the time you just <laughs> don't realize it and yeah. for the brains yeah. it's very clear that you just omit one cell and that permeability value is drastically changing so we really need to have all the at least the major component of the of the barrier to observe uh, nice yeah, results. Yeah, it's yeah. very very tightly regulated. And if we even use cells that are slightly too old, or you know, mm. like if if we get the concentration a bit off, the timing of the gelation a bit off, like things change. So yeah. it's it's yeah. a very it's a fussy model. The brain model is very fussy, much more fussy than the liver. And yeah. super interesting is when you start culturing the cancer cell in that blood-brain barrier model, and you will see how the cancer cell is impacting the the blood vessel, and, yeah. and how they spread, how they migrate, how they invade, yeah. and, and and start to migrate into the into the blood-brain barrier, the BBB. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so that that model we're very very excited about because um, I think for brain, I mean you know liver liver models have grown and but there's really very very few good brain models out there mm. um so so that's something that we're pretty excited about yeah yeah but i mean from from what we've discussed it, it really seems like the vasculature is so important to to the working of the models and um yeah i mean you know every model is wrong some of them are useful right uh <laughs> so <laughs> You know, you can you can say that the vascular is super important and you go to a different lab and they say, oh, no, it's the, the neurons that are super important. And then you go to another lab and they're like, but what about the osmolarity? You know, like everybody, every single there's so many things that are happening in the brain at the same time. Like um, we can just what we're trying to do at the moment is really study the impact of vasculature, which we know is very important, um, but we don't know how important precisely because. Um, we, but now we're able to because we have a, a relatively clean model where we can build it in from scratch, yep. right? And then we right, can right. start tweaking like with individual parameters. And that's kind of, I think the, 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 that's the, the thing about what we have is that it's a tweakable system as opposed to uh, an animal model where you just put it in and you just kind of hope for the best. And it also depends how you use the model. In our case, we are using to observe how immune cells are migrating into the tumor, right? Mm-hmm. So this is why we are collaborating with an MIT professor that is developing uh, CAR T cell therapy for uh, glioblastoma. And we want to see how the BBB is also impacting uh, the CAR T cell uh, yeah. therapy field, right? And yeah. and this is why we believe it. Yeah. In our hand, is an important model to have to observe the behavior. The behavior in conjunction with drugs, so you yeah. can also, because you want to enhance them. So actually on that note, like that, that project is um, perfectly uh, aligned for an in vitro complex model because what they have is a, a CAR-T library that they want to screen. Um, and we have an in vitro system that allows you to add stuff to it and then um, fix it, take out the entire tissue, 
potentially create a snapshot by by slicing sections through it and then retrieving the CARTs which made it and which ones didn't, right? From this library that we've put into the in the, the yeah. model. So 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 I mean it's yeah, like um so that's that's something that we're we haven't done it yet. That's the aim. <laughs> but yeah, we're very excited about that one too. Working on it. Working on it. Yeah. It's get yeah, they, I think they're just being sent now, the library. Then the last, I guess we mentioned drugs briefly, or well, we talked about drugs at length, um, but I wanted to know more about, say, um, dose variation, because I remember that that was something that was mentioned in your paper as well, uh, perhaps as like drug blending, because I understand some people are, are doing that kind of research. Would the models be suitable for the study of that? Do you mean like when they um, have lots of different microfluidic channels to um, automatically mix different ratios of drugs? I'd say so, yeah. Because I, I think, hmm, how do I put it? I think I was, I was attending a seminar where, where um, one of my ex, one of my ex professors was doing, was a part of this um, team that, that tries to understand patient to patient variability and how drug blending in, in certain proportions may prove more effective than just one straight drug with a fixed dose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kind of playing around with the drug regimen. Mm -hmm. I think for, for those, you need lots of replicates because then you're really trying like, you know, 10 to the 15 right. permutations right, right. or something like yeah. that. I don't know. And usually is what we do is like after we develop the model, we let our industry partner to to create a high throughput version. I give you the example. So we create one design, and that design they replicate in a plate, and in a plate you have forty of those models in a standard plate. And then you can play with drug. You can play with drug with a different concentration, a different time point, because you can fully automate it with an automatic liquid handler the entire plate and you can use a so-called high content imaging system to understand what's going on. So, but usually we let the other industry partner to, to go in that scale, uh, because I mean, we are a small lab, so we just yeah. focus on developing the model, proof with few drugs, and after that doing big screen, we let, or we collaborate with pharma, or we let the industry partner to, to recreate the model in a, in a, in a tr higher throughput version, uh, and then collaborate with pharma or biotech. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely possible, like, right, like, it's all about building the right machine to interact with the devices. Um, and then all these drug mixing should be machine done, like it should not be a person that's doing it for, for this kind of screen. Yeah. And I think that is the, the where we aim to go eventually as well, like to, to go to the high throughput level. Yeah. That would also, it also helps with making everything more standard. But yeah, thank you, Andrea and, and Maxine for coming on the podcast and uh, thanks. thanks for yeah, having us. Yeah, no, it's great. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings, or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. 
You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.